Good morning. I'll be reading John 2, 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no more wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw out some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now became wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan, Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's an amazing story, isn't it? Uh, so Jesus is at a wedding. The wine runs out, uh, which suggests, if you're paying attention, that people have been drinking a lot. Uh, in verse 10, the master of the feast points out that usually you serve the best wine in the beginning and you save the worst wine until the end when everyone has had so much to drink that they can't tell the difference. And the implication is that the party has about reached that point. And that's when Jesus brings out the really good stuff. We got to ask, like, what's going on here? Um, you know, last week we talked about the question of desire. This question, what do you want? What do you desire? And we notice that, like, this is a question that Jesus cares about. What are you after? What are you after? And I wonder, like, what if we take that question and just direct it toward the drinking of wine? What are we after when we drink wine? Like, what is it that people desire when we're drinking wine? Like, sometimes, there are all kinds of re reasons, right? right? Sometimes we drink because we have problems that feel too big for us to face. Like we want some way of making these problems that seem so overwhelming, so big, so large, just we want to shrink them down to size. We want to make them feel manageable. And, and the right amount of wine can make a really big problem feel like a not so big problem. Uh, sometimes we drink because it's a way of dealing with like pain, emotional pain maybe, physical pain. Uh, this pain feels like too much for us to handle, and so we try to drown it out. Um, sometimes we drink to lower our inhibitions. We feel too self-conscious or too timid, and so we drink to gain boldness and courage, or, or we drink to just kind of forget about ourselves entirely and to be more fully engaged with other people. I mean, for an introvert, a glass of wine is like a little dose of extroversion. Uh, <laughs> people who would never dance and sing at a wedding might dance and sing at a wedding if they've had a glass of wine or two. So I hear, I, I'm, 
maybe I'm speaking from personal experience. Uh, like sometimes we were drinking because we're longing for community. Uh, wine in the right amount almost always makes a party better. It helps us to be ourselves and to enjoy each other's company, and it and it makes us uh, it makes us more open with each other and more vulnerable to each other, which we all know can go horribly wrong. But we also know that the right amount of openness and vulnerability is like crucial for real community and for real relationships. And, and so that's like a lot of good things that we might be after when, when we drink wine, like less threatening problems, more manageable pain, community, celebration, rejoicing, singing and dancing, courage and vulnerability in relationships. It's like, it's like we drink because we want the fullness and the goodness of this life that God has given us. In other words, we drink because I think deep down we're longing for joy. Isn't that what it's about? We're longing for joy. And it can totally destroy us. Like all of us know people whose lives have been destroyed by drinking too much. And some of us have experienced that destruction in our own lives. Like wine promises life, but so often it leads to death. And Jesus makes just this massive quantity of the best wine ever, like 150 gallons. 150 gallons of the best wine ever. He's at a wedding. In ancient times, uh, in traditional cultures, weddings were even bigger deals than they are today. Uh, they'd last often multiple days, sometimes up to a week. They were these huge parties. Uh, there'd be feasting, dancing, singing, celebrating. In that culture, the responsibility for making sure that the wedding was a good one, it fell to the groom's family. It's the groom's family's responsibility to make sure that things go well. And at this wedding, at least for a while, it looks like things are going well, but then the wine runs out. Now, this is more than a catering misstep. Uh, this is like a catastrophe. This is a social disaster, a shameful thing for the couple and their families. Running out of wine in that day was the kind of thing that ruins a wedding and it wrecks reputations. So the wine has run out and, and then Jesus goes to work. Uh, is this just a cool party trick? Like, hey, check out what I can do. I can turn water into wine. I mean, it is super cool. Uh, but is it only cool? Is it merely cool? No. John tells us that this was the first of Jesus' signs and that it manifested his glory. So this is something that, like, clues us into the very uh, meaning and purpose of Jesus' identity and mission. Like, something about what Jesus does here is showing us what he's about in his entire ministry. And he does it here at the beginning, not by preaching a sermon, not by getting up in front of a bunch of people and giving a talk, uh, not by raising the dead, not by casting out a demon, not by healing a sick person, not by doing um, any of those miracles, which would have been amazing, but by creating 150 gallons of the best wine ever to keep a wedding party from fizzling out in shame. This is how Jesus reveals his glory. So what's going on? What is this about? What does it show us? It helps to be familiar 
almost always, when you're when you're talking about Jesus, when you're trying to understand the gospel, you have to usually, almost always, I want to say always, you've got to go back to the Old Testament. It just helps. helps to know what story Jesus sees himself as being a part of. And so remember this big story, that in the beginning, God created a world that was full of joy and blessing. And then things go off track when humans reject God's grace and run from his love and they rebel against him. And the result of that rebellion is like sorrow and sadness and shame entering into God's good world. And and so much of our experience now east of Eden is marked by this kind of ruin and this misery. But in the Old Testament, the prophets begin to speak of a, they're looking forward and they begin to speak of a day when God will come and when he will make things right. He will make things right. Listen to the language that they use. Um, This is from Joel. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. Or this from Amos. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. So it's just, it's just this image of like abundant, overflowing wine. Uh, listen to this from Isaiah. On, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, re- well-refined. You see, God's people have always, been out, ha- have always been on the lookout for good wine, for, um, for the fullness of joy that that wine represents and symbolizes. Like, where is it? When's it going to come? Who's, who's going to bring it? And Jesus shows up at this wedding, and he says, look, the joy that you're looking for, it's right here. It's right here. Like, when is it going to come? Right now. Who's bringing it? Jesus says, I am. Jesus brings joy. How does he bring it? Well, let's, let's return to this story. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And this is such a perplexing response that Jesus makes. And, you know, every week when I'm preparing for a passage, I, I read commentaries and all the, all the guys who study this, they're just, it's just hard to know exactly what to do with this because it looks like Jesus is kind of putting his mom off. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Uh, and, and, and then he basically, he says, uh, it's not my time. And the question is, time for what? Not his time for what? And we might think that what Jesus is saying is, it's not my time to do my first miracle. In other words, it's not my time to really launch my public ministry. The trouble with that, though, is that um, in John's gospel, this language of my hour, which is, which is the um, phrase that Jesus uses, my hour has not yet come, uh, always refers to Jesus' death. It's like a synonym in the Gospel of John for the death of Jesus, which makes this an even more strange exchange because it basically becomes something like this. Hey, Jesus, they've, won out, they've run out of wine, and Jesus says, well, it's not my time to die. 
It's like, well, it's like a non sequitur. But it's not a non sequitur. I mean, Jesus is making a connection between what's happening in that party, what's going on at that wedding, and the whole scope of his life and death and purpose. You know, G.K. Chesterton once said that everyone who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Everyone who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. That gets us back to that question about desire, right? It's like, we might desire one thing, but we might have another deeper desire, a desire beneath the desire. I think we could say that everyone who downs a bottle of wine is looking for God. It's like what, what, August, what Augustine says, that um, we have these restless hearts that are always on the lookout for one in whom they can really rest, really find true joy and satisfaction and delight. You know, throughout the Old Testament, God calls himself the bridegroom of his people. Like, that's extraordinary. When you think about it, it's like, whew, it's almost too much uh, that the kind of intimacy God wants with us is the kind of intimacy that a husband wants with his bride. Um, that kind of nearness, closeness, trust, love. I find in my own heart that I, I often want to back away from that. It's like, that's too much intimacy, too much closeness. But you see, family, that is the fullness of joy. Um, to be reunited with the one for whom we were created. Like, that is what your heart is hungry for. That is the longing beneath all your other longings. It's to know this one. It's to be united to this one. It's like we're longing for the good wine, which is a way of saying we're longing for joy, which is just a way of saying that we're longing for God himself. And Jesus says, I'm bringing that. Right here at this wedding, he, know, he knows that he is the joy bringer. He knows that he is the one to bring the long lost joy to the world, to make everything sad come untrue, to like undo the curse of the fall. And he also knows that this will mean his death. They've run out of wine. It's not my time to die. We've seen that abundant wine is often an Old Testament prophetic image of the blessing and joy that will come uh, when God comes to make all things right. But there's another way that wine is used in the Old Testament as a sign. And it's as a symbol of judgment against human evil and sin. It's, it's this cup of God's fierce opposition to everything that spoils shalom. And there's a question kind of running throughout the Old Testament, like who will drink this cup? And a lot of times it turns out it's the enemies of God who drink the cup of God's wrath. Jesus is at a wedding and the wine has run out and he's thinking about the wine he will bring and he's thinking about his death that his whole identity and purpose is, is to bring good wine 
to bring the cup of blessing and joy into our lives, but he also knows that in order for this to happen, uh, he will have to take on evil and sin and suffering and sorrow, and he will have to bear in his own body the guilt and the judgment for human sin and evil. One writer, a guy named Ed Clowney, says that at this wedding, Jesus sat amidst all the joy all the celebrating going on, sipping the coming sorrow so that you and I can sit amidst all the world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. It's like to bring the cup of blessing, Jesus has to drink the cup of curse. Um, And on the cross, he does it, family. Like he drinks that cup down to the bitter dregs. He becomes the man of sorrow so that we can become people of like deep, abiding joy. Jesus brings joy. When do we receive it? When do we receive it? I want to show you two things that I think this passage suggests. Like one way that we can answer that question, when does Jesus bring this joy, is right now. He brings it right now. Um, The master of the feast says, you have kept the good wine until now. Here it is. Right now. Right now, Jesus is here. Did you know that right now Jesus is here? You know that? I think sometimes we forget about that when we're at church. Like, Jesus Christ is here. By the power of his Spirit, bringing the exact same fullness of joy that was on offer at that wedding. That's a gift for us right here, right now, that the Spirit brings to us the reality of the risen Jesus. I'm bringing the good wine. Not by diminishing uh, our awareness of reality. Like That's what ordinary wine does. That's how ordinary wine makes you joyful. It kind of shrinks everything down. It kind of gives you a smaller vision. But no, the Spirit enhances our vision, expands our field of vision. Um, So like, you know, I'm thinking of this place in Ephesians where where Paul says, um, what does he say? He says, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Isn't that interesting? That like, Paul recognizes that we're after the same things. That, that like, the Spirit wants to give us what wine promises. Uh, it's just, it's, there's a better way of getting what wine promises. So, let's think through some examples. Like, let's say you're losing your job. What do you do? Well, you could drink. That's what a lot of people do when they lose their job. They drink. And if you drink enough, the problem of unemployment will feel smaller and smaller. If you drink, if you drink enough, long enough, like it just won't even feel like a problem at all. It'll still be a problem, but it won't feel like one. Or let's say that, let's say that you experience the death of someone who you really love. Um, you could drink to diminish the pain of that, to make the sorrow feel more manageable, to shrink it down to a size that feels more survivable. And and we probably all know people who have done that and who have dealt with grief in that way. Um, You know, though, that that doesn't work. It doesn't work. Uh, What does the Spirit do? The Spirit connects us with the risen Jesus himself. 
The Spirit doesn't make your vision smaller but bigger. The Spirit helps you to see more of reality, not less. And so, and so you actually see the fullness of the problem of unemployment, and it's bad, but that's not all you see. You also see Jesus Christ. You also see the true bridegroom who gave himself for you, who rejoices over you, who loves you, and who cares for you in your unemployment. And so not having a job becomes a smaller problem, not because you're seeing less of reality, but because you're actually seeing so much more of reality. You're seeing that little problem together with all the goodness of the gospel. And with the Spirit, you feel the depth of the pain of losing someone you love. Like, you actually feel the pain way more than you would if you were drunk. But you also remember and you trust that the Lord promises to be near the brokenhearted. He promises to save the crushed in spirit. He promises to draw close to those who are hurting and to actually make your hurt his hurt, to make your pain his pain. And he promises one day to bring the death of death. When do we receive this good wine? When do we receive the joy that Jesus brings? I mean, one way we have to answer that question is like, right here if you want it, right now. Be filled with the Spirit. Live in freedom as a son or daughter of God. Like, trust that you are the beloved. Trust that what we sing about is true. Like, Jesus has paid it all. It's finished. There's nothing you can add to that. You have a bridegroom who delights in you, who longs to be with you. I love what Dale Bruner says. He, he points out that our wine always runs out, but then he says this, we have the deep privilege now of living contact with the winery. Isn't that good? I mean, that's, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, like, I'm the one who can bring the fullness of the good stuff anywhere, anytime, any place. And he invites us to abide with him. Right? What do you think he's saying when he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Like, get connected to me. Like, this is how it flows. Jesus brings joy. Well, what if you're not experiencing it? That'd be like a whole series of sermons. We could do a series of sermons like joy killers. Let me just, let's just, uh, like there are, all, there are so many things that can interfere with joy. I want to just point out one thing that I think this passage in particular suggests. Like the good wine comes uh, only when our ordinary wine has run out and only as people respond to Jesus with simple trust. Like super simple trust. And, and what that suggests to me is that often we don't experience the good wine Jesus offers um, just because we haven't given up yet on our ordinary wine. Uh, we don't experience the good wine because we don't do maybe the simple, simple things that Jesus asks us to do. Like, it's like we keep insisting on finding joy apart from him. It's like we don't trust that life with Jesus really is the best life.
I wonder what your conception is of life with Jesus. And I wonder maybe if you need to let this story challenge it. Challenge your conception of life with Jesus. Like when Mary, the mother of Jesus, learns that the wine has run out, her first instinct is to go to Jesus. And I wonder if that's our first instinct. Like sometimes people reject Jesus or resist Jesus because they see him as being someone who's interested in shutting down celebrations. Like if we go to Jesus and really embrace him, really give our lives to him, really trust him, the result will be a lot less joy. A lot less joy. I mean, I've got Netflix. Why go to Jesus? Um, like if we're with Jesus, the result will be that we become like religious prudes who are set on spoiling everyone's fun. I think, I think that that's sometimes our fear. Like we really don't believe that Jesus is the good life. We believe he did some important things and said some amazing things but we really think in our heart of hearts that we know how to live in a way that will bring us more joy and satisfaction apart from him. That interferes with our joy. I mean, anytime we're pursuing our own way, seeking our own wine, seeking our own happiness apart from Jesus, uh, we won't experience the joy that he offers. And do you see that that's actually like a really good thing? Um, that, that, that that itself is a gift of God's grace? That it, that it would not be a sign of God's love for you to be fully satisfied with whatever wine you can muster up on your own? Not if Jesus is true. Not if he really is the good stuff. Like We are built to be discontent until we're connected to him. I just don't know. I don't know if I believe that half the time. So I don't know if we believe it. Well, so that's one thing this story suggests. I mean, the story suggests that for the, tr for the true joy to come, we've got to turn away from, from our efforts to make our own wine. We have to just do this, like, simple obedience to Jesus. Simple obedience. But... Let's say, fine, what if you're doing that? What if you're trusting Jesus and you're doing what he asks as best as you can tell and, and still it's just, there's no joy? Well, at that point, um, religion steps in and it says, well, what's wrong with you? It says, try harder. It says, you must not be doing it quite as well as you think you are. Like, you're not trusting enough or you're not obeying enough. Um, surely you're missing something. But family, this story of Jesus at the wedding, it's not actually inviting us to one more self-salvation project. The point of it isn't a conditional offer, something like, if you abandon your ordinary wine and trust Jesus enough and obey enough, then, then the good wine will flow into your life. Um, that would just throw us back on ourselves, wouldn't it? And it, it would make our joy entirely contingent on our own efforts and our own abilities to trust and obey. But 
But notice that this first sign of Jesus, this sign that reveals his glory, it's just, it's, it's so surprising and unexpected and free and generous and, and like extravagantly abundant. I mean, there's, there's no way that people could have planned or calculated or, or um, prepared for this. Like 150 gallons of the best wine ever. No one, no one deserves that. <laughs> no one can earn that. It's just grace all the way down. Jesus brings joy. And so if we ask this question, when, uh, we can say right now, but we also have to say not yet. We also have to say not yet. And, and that's what I want you to hear if you are, as best as you can tell, like turning away from all this wine that you're mustering up for yourself and you're doing the little simple acts of obedience that Jesus is calling you to and you're still not feeling the fullness of joy, like I think we just need to say, yeah, that's right. Like that too is a normal, regular part of the Christian experience. I mean, listen to this quote again from Ed Clowney. Jesus sat amidst all the joy, sipping the coming sorrow at this wedding, so that you and I can sit amidst all this world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. And I like his use of the word sipping. Because here and now, so often that is what it is. It's like it sips. It's foretaste here and there. It's not like, it's not like what was that really stupid movie with Weird Al Yankovic where you get to drink from the fire hose? What was it? UHF. UHF. Yeah, I haven't seen that since I was in middle school. Never watched that movie. Um, but we don't get to drink from the fire hose of God's joy. Or, or we do every now and then. Maybe, maybe you feel like you do. But it doesn't last. It's like none of us are walking around 24-7 just fire hosed up with joy. No, it's more like we're sipping. Here and there, we're sipping. The good wine is for us right now, but sometimes all we get is sips. The 150 gallons of overflowing joy, the fire hose of joy, when does it arrive? Well, listen again. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And I think that John's always intentional with what he's saying about these days. And, and all the early Christians, when they thought the third day, what were they thinking of? Yeah, yeah, they were thinking of resurrection. On the third day, so, so it's like, so maybe, maybe one of the things this passage is saying is that like one day, it's reminding us that one day um, our wine's going to run out. Just like all of the world, all, all the wine of this world runs out and we will return to the dust. And then on the third day, there's a wedding and Jesus is there and he brings the good wine and that's when the party really begins. 
in the meantime, family, uh, Jesus just offers them, us himself. He invites us to trust him, to abide in him, to make our home in him. John tells us that the disciples believed in him. Literally, uh, the way that John likes to say it is they believed into him. And you might think, well, didn't they already believe in him? And sure, yeah, they did. But this word believe is not just about having true ideas about Jesus floating around in your head. Uh, it's about relational trust. Have, have you thought about the difference between just believing someone and trusting someone? It's a big difference. There's a big difference between belief and trust. When I was on sabbatical, one of the things our family did was we took a little family vacation together to Puerto Rico. And in Puerto Rico, there is a uh, zip line. It's like the world's biggest zip line. I think if I'm remembering correctly, in Spanish, it's called like the green monster. So, so it just sounds kind of ominous. But you strap yourself into this thing and you are on it for like 90 seconds. It's like a minute and a half and you reach speeds that are just so, so fast that you have to wear like, you know, goggles and protective gear. And we were reading about this, this zip line. And I fully believed that um, in theory, I could, you know, do that zip line and survive it. And that it, that it might even be fun. And that I, I believed that I might even regret not doing it. I mean, I, I had no doubt, like, no one's ever died on this thing. It's, it's totally safe. I'll tell you what I didn't do. I didn't trust that zip line. So we didn't book a reservation. We didn't do it. There's no way. Because trusting it, that's different, isn't it? Trusting it means that I would have to get up on this huge, high platform, and I'd have to, like, put on a harness and, and look at this little thin cable, and I'd have to trust a carabiner. And I would have to put, like, the full weight of my life onto this thing that I would then hope, trust, to carry me to the end. And I just thought, no. Oh. <laughs> no. I mean, I'd rather sit here and read about it, honestly. And, and, and do you see that there's a difference? There is a difference between believing. Yeah, I believe that Jesus could save me. Yeah, I believe that Jesus is going to bring joy. Sure. There's a difference between that and saying, I'm going to take the full weight of my life and I'm going to put it onto Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to let him hold me up. I'm going gonna, gonna to lean into him over and over again. This, this believing into that John talks about, it's not a one-time thing. It's not a one-time thing. This is the kind of thing that we are invited to do over and over. It's like this daily motion of trust as we face different decisions, as, as we face different circumstances, saying, I'm going to take the full weight of my life and I'm going to lean it into Jesus. So that's what's on offer. It's nothing less than Jesus Christ himself. Let's pray, and then we'll come to the table.